Well, we're in Revelation 19 tonight, so if you'll turn in your Bibles there to Revelation 19, we'll, we'll get started in this chapter this evening. And we have Bibles if you need one, so just raise a hand as these guys are coming up and down the aisles, and they'll hand you a Bible, make your way to Revelation 19. Has anybody been fixated on this whole rescue mission in Chile like I have? I mean, and, and I got to tell you, as I'm watching these men being lifted up through these, you know, small little cylinders, I am getting completely claustrophobic. And I'm nowhere near what they're going through. But man, if you've ever had an MRI, right? Just try to magnify that like 2,300 feet, okay? And then you get a small idea of uh, what that must be like to, to be transported through that small little cylinder. So, wow, but praise the Lord that so far, so good. And so those guys are being rescued. And, but I expected, I said to Andy earlier today, I said, I expected to see them coming out looking like the, you know, they were on a tropical island, like Survivor, for like you know, two months. And they're clean shaven. They've had, it looks like they've had haircuts. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how they've come out looking so well, but... Uh, I'm sure there's going to be a movie made. I'll watch it for sure and see how all that has worked out. I'm intrigued with two tablespoons of tuna fish and peaches and how do you do that? Anyway, we're blessed, right? You're above ground tonight and you have had a good meal probably. And so praise the Lord. All right. We're in Revelation 19 this evening, and um, oh, by the way, before I dive into that, wanted to mention, where are Paul and Kim Luters? Where are y'all? There you are. Stand up, Paul and Kim. A couple of missionaries we support. They've been longtime members of Cornerstone. Then they went out on the mission field. How long ago now? A year ago. And uh, they're with Every Orphan's Hope. And they're ministering here in the States. But they, I'm sure, travel a lot too. And so they're, they're back in our area for a little while. You guys are going to be sharing Saturday night at our Saturday night service. But they do have a table out in the fellowship hall. Check it out on your way out. Every Orphan's Hope, Zambia, Africa. A lot of work that you guys are doing so well there. And some of our own homegrown missionaries here from Cornerstone. So let's just praise the Lord for them, all right? God bless you guys. Check out their table on your way out tonight and uh, encourage them. Missionaries have it rough. And, um, and so we praise the Lord that they're doing God's work there. And uh, we can partner with them in prayer and, and in our financial giving. So we praise the Lord for, for you guys, Paul and Kim. Revelation chapter 19. Uh, this is a refreshing chapter because, we, wow, we've, you know, we've made our way through some really terrible events in the book of Revelation. The last couple of chapters, we've been looking at the great prostitute. And, uh, you know, the, the great prostitute of chapter 17 is this false religious system. And then, the, then that translates into chapter 18, which is this false commercial political enterprise that becomes this global worldwide government. And so all of that now is a, in sharp contrast to what we're about to read in chapter 19, because chapter 17 is about the great prostitute. Chapter 19 is about the bride of Christ. So we're moving from something very evil, very sinister, very, this global, just uh, religious, economic, uh, evil power to this wonderful, refreshing look at the Bride of Christ, and in particular in chapter 19, the return of the Lord. And so this is a bright and encouraging chapter as we're drawing near to the end of the, of the book of Revelation. So you all have been faithful to be here as we've been studying through this book verse by verse, 
And we're coming to, to the concluding chapters here, which are, of course, the most encouraging. Because, you know, we, as the saying goes, we know how the book ends. And, and so we know what is coming. And having made our way through all of this terrible stuff that's going to occur on the earth, what joy there is for us to see in these closing chapters, the wonderful hope that is outlined for, for believers and the eternal reward that is in store for us. Now, as you look at this 19th chapter with me tonight, uh, I want to point out that there is the mention. I'm going, to, I'm going to bullet point a couple of things before we dive into our study here. But I do want to mention that th- there are references to two suppers in chapter 19. And there's a reference to the, the wedding supper of the Lamb. You can just underline that in verse 9. The wedding supper of the Lamb. And then there's another supper mentioned in verse 17, and it's referred to as the Great Supper of God. Now, these are two very different suppers. The, the supper, the wedding supper of the Lamb in verse 9 is where you get to be the guest of honor if you're a believer. The Great Supper of God in verse 17 is where you get to be the main course if you're not. Okay, so very different suppers here. The one is the wedding supper of the Lamb. It's an encouraging thing. But the great supper of God is when the, the birds of the air begin to devour the flesh of, of the enemies of God that he has triumphed over. And so very different suppers. You're the guest of honor at one. You don't want to be the main course at the other. But then I also want you to notice in this 19th chapter that it's like a, a cacophony here of sights and sounds. Uh, Because there are several times that John writes, I heard uh, or I saw. And one of the things that he first mentions here is I heard in verse 1. You can just circle that. And what he's going to describe from verse 1 down through verse 5 is heaven rejoicing over the destruction of the great prostitute. So that's going to be in response to the destruction of the great prostitute that we've read about in chapter 17 and 18. There's weeping on the earth by all the kings and merchants when their economic world system is crumbled by God. They weep, but in heaven they're rejoicing. So we're going to see what John hears there, and and that's the first mention of what he hears. And then the second mention, he says, I heard in verse uh, 6, and what he hears is heaven rejoicing over the wedding of the Lamb. And that's going to take us uh, down through about verse 10, at which point it switches from what he hears to what he sees. And so then what we have, starting in verse 11, he says, I saw, and what he mentions is he saw the second coming of Jesus with the saints. So this is where it gets really good. And then he mentions in verse 17, another time, I saw, and he's going to tell us that he saw the destruction of the armies gathered for war at Armageddon. And then one last saw in verse 19 where he says, I saw, and he's going to describe the punishment of the Antichrist, which is the beast, and false prophet in the lake of fire. Now, this is not annihilation. This is punishment, and this is eternal punishment. Some people have the wrong concept that there is this annihilation, but that's not true. What God tells us is that the lake of fire is perpetual suffering forever and ever. So... This, this uh, mention here of different sights and sounds, I wanted to just point that out to you because it, it serves to be 
kind of a built-in outline for this 19th chapter when he talks about, I heard heaven rejoicing over the destruction of the great prostitute. That's the first section. I heard heaven rejoicing over the wedding of the Lamb. We'll read about that. And then these various things that he sees, we'll study that as well. So it's kind of a built-in outline. And so uh, let's, let's dive in there. Let's just go to the Lord in prayer one more time and ask him to help us as we study his word together. Lord, we just now commit our Bible study to you and just pray that you will just encourage us now as we see uh, recorded here in the pages of your word, the record of what is to come, that you are coming again. And we look forward to your second coming. And whether we're, whether we're waiting to be raptured or whether we will be part of that um, group that eventually returns with you, we uh, just delight to take comfort in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that no one here who, who uh, is listening to this teaching tonight, either here or, or watching by internet, that no one will be left behind, that no one would be without an understanding, that you've made the way possible for all of us who believe and receive you to have that assurance of heaven, to have the hope of heaven in our hearts, to know that our sins are forgiven. That, Lord, this is the greatest joy that we could possibly have, that you have granted and guaranteed for us heaven if we would just simply receive you and believe in you. And so what a joyful chapter now that we can study after all of this, the heaviness that you have given us. And you give us these heavy things. You tell us these things because you want us to be warned in advance. You want us to know. You don't want anyone to be caught off guard. You don't want anyone to have an excuse because you want us all to be informed and to be ready and to understand what is to come. And so, Lord, I pray, no excuses here. We would choose you. We would be ready for you. We would long for you. And we would live for you until you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. Verse 1. John writes, after this, meaning after the destruction of the great prostitute, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah. Now circle that word. Some of your translations might say, Alleluia, starting with an A. That's the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew. The Hebrew is Hallelujah. And this is interesting because this is the only time that the word Hallelujah is mentioned in the New Testament. And you're going to see the word four times in this 19th chapter. But you don't find the word hallelujah anywhere else in the New Testament. It's only here in Revelation 19 where the word appears four times. And in a Greek, originally, a Greek New Testament, how it was originally written, uniquely you have a Hebrew word. Hallelujah is from the combination of the Hebrew words hallel, meaning to praise, and then yah for Yahweh. It means praise the Lord. I, I always marvel when I see people or hear people use this word, you know, who aren't believers. I, I remember watching the news one time and some great event happened and I don't know, I think it was Dan Rather or somebody and just, you know, and said, well, hallelujah. And I just thought, do you even know what you just said? Do you know you just praise the Lord of heaven and earth? Probably not. But it is a universal term. You go to anywhere in the world, any other country, and they will still use this same word. So it's a universal term. And it's preserved in the Hebrew, even though it was originally written in the Greek language, and we have it in our English Bibles as a Hebrew word, because it means to praise the Lord, and is found 
four times in this 19th chapter. So, Alleluia is just the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew, Hallelujah. Same word, meaning to praise the Lord. And then, and then this is what he hears. He hears this great multitude. So, what he's hearing are the saints in heaven. Now, this is, this is probably a combination of saints and angels, everybody in heaven. And they're shouting. This is not, you know, ho, ho, hum. This is shouting now. This is loud. So get used to it. If sometimes you think, sound system's too loud, get used to it. It's going to be loud in heaven. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, number three, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. So this is the first thing that he hears. And he hears this great multitude, it says in verse 1, heaven is shouting, so all of those who are there in heaven, which would be all the saints that are preserved in heaven during that tribulation period, they're there. And all of those who have died ahead of time, who knew Christ, they're there. And you have the uh, symphony and the chorus of angels, they're there. And they're shouting, hallelujah, praise the Lord. And it's interesting, in the original Greek language, salvation, glory, and power each have the direct article, the, in front of it. It literally reads, Hallelujah, the salvation and the glory and the power belong to our God. Meaning, there is no other salvation, there is no other glory, there is no other power. It is all due unto the Lord and He deserves all praise for it. Salvation is of the Lord and only Him. It's only by Jesus that we are saved. And, and so, it is His salvation, the salvation, the glory, the power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. And then they're celebrating the condemnation of the great prostitute. So that's an indication that what's going on in heaven is somewhat like a mezzanine and they're looking over and they're seeing all these things that are transpiring during the great tribulation period where they're kept safe from it because they're rejoicing in heaven about something that is happening on earth. So there has to be some awareness, at least in this case. I don't know. Some people have asked me from time to time, how much do our loved ones who have gone on to be with the Lord, how much do they know what's happening here on earth? I have no idea. I don't think the Bible really indicates that to us. I personally probably suspect very little to nothing, and here's why. First of all, if you're around the throne of Jesus, you're probably not at all thinking about what's going on on earth. Now, don't take that personally. You know, like somebody who's going on before you is not thinking about you and concerned about you. It's just that it's got to be so spectacular there. And, you know, there's a difference in the whole time-space continuum. So, you know, how much are people aware of what's going on down here? I don't know. Plus, on the other hand, you have to consider, there's no crying, there's no weeping, there's no mourning in heaven, there's no grief. There's bound to be some stuff that they're going to be looking at going on in, in, in the earth and wondering, that's got to give them heavy hearts. So I, I don't know how much of it people currently are sheltered from seeing or knowing, because then that would bring heartache in heaven, I would suspect, as they look at what's going on on earth. But for at least this time period, 
God is allowing those who are in heaven to see what's going on enough on earth such that they then give praise and glory to God because of the destruction of the great prostitute. And so they're worshiping the Lord. And, and one of the things that they're thankful about is the end of verse 2. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And you have to remember that back in chapter 6, that the, those who became believers during the tribulation period... Um, and then they lost their lives as a result of their faith, they were crying out back in Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10, they were crying out for vengeance. And, And back in 6, verse 9, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and of the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And so now, those same saints in heaven are rejoicing because they're saying, Lord, thank you, you have now brought about justice, you are true and just in all your ways, and you are uh, now avenging the blood that was shed, our blood that was shed when we were martyred for our faith during this uh, period of tribulation, because those then, uh, during the tribulation, who get saved will be killed for their faith in Jesus. And so now the Lord is bringing that vengeance. And and the Lord said that, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so in his timing, he's going to balance all the scales. Sometimes we look out in the world right now and we get disheartened because we think of all the injustices. And And I know I've heard from skeptics and critics, unbelievers, that's an argument that they use. Well, if God is such a just and a holy and a loving God, why does he allow all this injustice to occur in the earth? The answer, in short, is because the earth is under the dominion of the devil, and and that is the result of fallen nature. Humanity is evil to the core, and what we're seeing happening is man's inhumanity to man. It's the evil of our sinful nature and, and the dominion of darkness that rules and reigns for a season over the earth. But that's the very reason Jesus died, was to rescue us from the dominion of darkness and to transfer us into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. And that God is going to one day settle all the injustices in His timing. He is just and true, and He's righteous, and He has to punish unrighteousness because if He didn't punish unrighteousness, then He wouldn't be a righteous God. And so it'll all be settled eventually. And, you know, in in, in the meantime, we just have to fix our eyes on Jesus. We have to recognize that terrible things do happen in this world and uh, unspeakable things. And no doubt God's heart is broken over it, but that's why he sent Jesus to rescue us. And the only reason that he hasn't come back so far is because he's patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. The the longer that he tarries, it's, it's really for one purpose at this point now, because everything biblically that needs to happen before the rapture, the second coming of Jesus, has happened. And so the only reason he's still tarrying is because he wants as many people to be saved. If you're here tonight and you're not saved, by that I mean you don't know Christ as a personal Lord and Savior, the Lord is being patient with you. He has not come back because he wants people just like you to respond to his love and to accept him as Savior before it's too late. And there will be a point of no return. There will be a day when the Lord says enough is enough, time is done, and now the nations will be judged. And we're leading up to that point. And we're seeing these things unfolding before our eyes, even now as world events are coming together, you know, and you're keeping a watchful eye on what's happening in the Middle East and Iran and all these nations that are aligning themselves 
with each other and against Israel. And, you know, what, what has been true up to this point through the Bible, those other prophecies that are still to happen will continue to be true because the record of the Bible is 100% accurate. So all those other things that are still yet to happen, you better believe are going to happen just as God has outlined them in His Word. And He's being patient with us. So, yes, it's difficult sometimes when we look out in this world and we see all these terrible things. He's being patient with us. He wants us to get saved and to know Him as Lord and Savior. And so they talk about here in verse 3 about how smoke from her that is the great prostitute goes up forever and ever. Listen to that perpetual punishment. And then it tells in verse 4 about the 24 elders and the four living creatures. Now, we were introduced to them back in chapter 4. The 24 elders represent the church that is with the Lord then in heaven. The four living creatures are otherwise known as cherubim. We're talking about angelic beings. And it says the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And, and they cry, Amen and Hallelujah. And then a voice came from the throne. This is verse 5. Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both small and great. Which is probably the martyred saints of the tribulation. Because the ser- a reference to the servants, they're, they're called servants back in chapter 6, verse 11. Uh, And so there could be either the martyred saints during the tribulation period or could be all Old Testament believers. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about Old Testament believers in terms of saints. So so there you have it. That's the first thing that he hears. The second thing that he hears is starting in verse 6 down through verse 9, rather verse 10. So let me read that passage and then we'll come back and and dig it out. Verse 6 says, Then I heard... What sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Now, who's His bride? Who is it? Just shout out. It's a church. It's it's believers. His bride has made herself ready. Verse 8, five fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, write, blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him, that is the angel who just spoke. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. All right, so here's here's what he hears. Again, multitude. You know, if you've ever been, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, at some point have been to, to some big you know, sporting event, some big stadium event where you've got, you know, 90 to 100,000 people just, you know, cheering and shouting. So... You know, multiply that however many fold, because whoever, who knows how many thousands will be there in heaven. But just think of a stadium event with 100,000 people, the cheering. I mean, it, it does kind of sound like this rumbling, this thunderous kind of a sound. And so multiply that with just this cheering and shouting and this, you know, symphony of praise that's going to be happening there in heaven. And John hears again, here's the, the fourth time the word is used, hallelujah, praise the Lord. In verse uh, 6, for our Lord Almighty reigns. And, and then he talks about rejoicing and being glad, giving the glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, 
and his bride has made herself ready. Now, I need to explain to you the, the basic three parts of a Jewish wedding in order for you to understand the language here if you don't already know the phases of a Jewish wedding. Because the language here is um, referencing the culmination of the, a union between a husband and a wife. Now, here's typically how it would happen in, in, um, back in the day. Uh, they, don't, they don't follow this strictly today, of course, uh, but um, some, of, some practices are still included in, in an Orthodox Jewish ceremony. But in terms of the three phases I'm about to explain to you, they don't typically do these three phases today. But here's how it used to be done. The first phase was known as the engagement phase, or to use an old King James word, the betrothal phase. When a, a, uh, a woman and a man were betrothed to each other or engaged, and I, I hesitate to use the word engagement because in our American mindset of engagement, here's how we think of engagement. Some guy wants to marry a girl. If he has enough guts and courage and does it the right way, he goes asks, you know, his future father-in-law, can I marry your daughter? And then hopefully that goes well. And then... You, you get the ring, and then you propose, and you give her the ring. And then, how long between when you give her the ring and you actually have a ceremony can vary. You know, whoever knows. Uh, who, who got married uh, between your engagement to your wedding uh, with, within less than a year of that time? Let me see your hands. All right, who got, all right, less than six months. Let me see your hands. All right, there's several of you. Less than three months between your engagement and your, less than three months? You got a couple in the back. The two hands that... Okay, you do too. And I see two hands in the back are two pastors here at Cornerstone. Are you kidding me? Less than three months? And Well, when you know, you know, right? When you know, you know. All right, less than, less than, less than two months? I'm just curious. And so now the two hands of the pastors are still up. Less than a month? Come on. Are you kidding me? I don't even know this about my own pastors. I'm learning something new. All right? So now it's... Who said two days? Who said two days? For real? In the back? Let me see your hand. Wave it. Who? They're kidding. All right, so how, how long for you, Matt? Six weeks. And for you, Vic? Three weeks. And how long have you been married now? Not ca- 37 years. That's great. Not counting your first wife, but that's great. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. Susan is his first and only wife. 37 years. So three weeks and you know it. Okay. So that's the American, that's the Western way of getting married. So we get a ring and then three weeks later we're at the altar. All right. Go figure that out. But then it's lasted 37 years. I don't recommend that, but okay. If you know that's the one, great. Anyhow, I'm getting off on a tangent now because I'm totally shocked at that. I did not know that. All right. Now, here's, here's how it was done typically in a Jewish setting. They would have a betrothal. And here's how the betrothal would happen. The father of the bride would, um, uh, sorry, father of the groom would pay the father of the bride what's called a bride price, otherwise known as a dowry. Now, it could be anything that was agreed upon. This was a transaction, my friend. This was a business deal. This was a contract between two dads. So the father of the bride would receive from the father of the groom an agreed-upon bride price. It could vary. I'll give you three goats. I'll give you ten goats. It just depends, you know, how cute she was. Um, now, 
I told you this when we got back from Israel, that my daughter was offered 10,000 camels by this guy on the street in Israel. 10,000 camels. I said, buddy, 15,000 at least. But look, <laughs> but they would exchange a bride price. It was actually alimony in advance. I'm not kidding. It was alimony in advance because here's why. If there was ever a divorce, for a woman to be divorced in ancient Israel was scandalous. And at that point, she would be hard-pressed to, to survive. You, how, do you, how do you make... You, in this very male-dominated culture in ancient Israel, for a woman to be divorced and now on her own and can't go back to her father's home, how is she going to survive? The bride price paid in advance is what she'd be living off of. After that transaction happened, now, depending on the age of the, ch of the children at that point, because you could, you could exchange a contractual arrangement between fathers when the children were as young as two years old. But now when they reached marital age, which in ancient Israel was some, somewhere in their early teens, it is believed that Mary was probably 14 or 15 when she was betrothed to Joseph. He was probably much older, as we can glean a little bit from the scriptures, but typically they would be married off very young, uh, as soon as they were basically at child-producing age. And, um, and at that point, they exchanged vows. So you have this engagement betrothal period. Contract is made, bride price is given, vows are exchanged. But there was no sexual union yet. The second phase was this preparation phase, where the groom would then leave for a period of one year. And he would go to his father's house and he would build an addition. Everybody lived under one roof in that day. So you could have three or four generations living under one roof because as children got married, they just built extra rooms under the house. So if that doesn't sound like a great idea, thank God you're in America in the 21st century. But here's my point. They, a groom would go away, build an addition onto the house for a year. He would be, according to Scripture, exempt from military duty for that entire year. And both the bride and the groom were, kept, were to be kept pure because at this point, though they are betrothed or engaged, they are, for all, all intents and purposes, considered married. They have not had sexual union yet, but they are to keep themselves pure and they are off the market, if you will, to anybody else. The groom then, at the end of that one-year period, comes back to receive his bride and to take her back to his home that he's just built this addition and then they consummate the marriage. There is a year between the engagement and the consummation of the marriage. And after the consummation of the marriage, there's the third and the final phase to this whole wedding, and that's a feast. That's this wedding feast, this wedding supper, and it usually uh, takes uh, the period of about seven days to celebrate this wedding. Now, with that in mind... This is a beautiful explanation of what is happening in the phase of the church. We are presently in the betrothal period. What do I mean? The bride price was paid. Jesus died on the cross and he purchased us with his blood. That was the bride. We are the bride. Jesus is the groom. He's the bridegroom. He dies for us, and Paul said in his second letter to the Corinthians, I want to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. 
So we are engaged. We are off the market. We belong to no one else except the Lord. And he paid the price in advance for us by purchasing us with his blood. We belong to him. We are engaged. We are betrothed. But Jesus has gone away. He's prepared a place for us. John 14, verses 1, 2, and 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will return again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you might be also. What's Jesus using? He's using marital language in John 14. What he's saying to his disciples and what he's saying to us is, you are betrothed to me. You are engaged to me. I'm going to go away just like a groom goes away for a period of time. I'm preparing a place for you. I will come again and receive you unto myself. Now, when he comes again, it'll be that rapture time. That's why in Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins, Jesus said, so it will be at the coming of the, of the Son of Man. We have to be ready. The, the, the foolish virgins weren't ready. They weren't watching. They weren't prepared. But the groom was returning again, and the wise virgins had trimmed the wicks of their lamp. They had the oil, and they were watching, and they were waiting for the return of the bridegroom. And by the way, traditionally, in ancient Israel, when the groom would return for his bride, they would count down the clock, knowing that the year was about ready for the bridegroom to return. The bride would gather together her bridesmaids, and oftentimes the groom would sound a trumpet to let, uh, blow the shofar, blow the trumpet, the ram's horn, to let the wedding party know he's returning for his bride. You see all this beautiful typology in the language of Scripture. So the Lord's going to sound the trumpet. Because the bridegroom, Jesus, is going to return for the bride. He's going to rapture the church. He's going to take us to be with him in his father's house. And there, if you will, the union, the salvation of our faith comes to fruition or consummation. Because right now we're waiting in anticipation of the fullness of our salvation. Yes, of course, we're saved and we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior. But the fullness of that salvation, we've not been with him yet. We, we, we're not with him for all eternity. So when he comes again, the Bible says he comes not again to judge the world, but, but he talks about how that we might receive salvation through him. So that's the fullness of our salvation. So then that's the consummation of the relationship. But now what's the third phase? The third phase is the celebration. It's the wedding supper. That's what Revelation 19 is talking about. So the first two phases, we're in phase one right now. We're in the betrothal engaged period. Jesus is going to come again in the clouds to rapture his bride. We're going to be caught up to be with the Lord and to go to be with him. And then he's going to come back to the earth and he's going to bring us with him. And there's going to be this great celebration. There's going to be this wedding, this feast. And that's what this wedding of the Lamb is referring to. So there's this beautiful language here about the wedding. And, but if you don't understand those three phases of the Jewish wedding, traditionally speaking, this doesn't have the you know, the emphasis that it, that it should. So I wanted to share all that with you so you can appreciate what's going to happen. Well, we're engaged now. Jesus is going to come again, receive us on him, take us to his father's house where he's, he has many mansions. He's built a place for us. And then there's going to be this wedding feast that follows. And that's what's described here between verses 6 and uh, 10. And so uh, fine linen will be given to us to wear. Uh, verse 8 tells us. So that's good news. We're all going to have the same outfit. 
No more comparing with each other. Like, I can't believe, look what she's wearing. You know, none of that stuff. No guy envying, no lady envying each other's outfits or, you know, what, where'd you get that? What's that on sale? I can't believe, not going to have any of that stuff. It's just going to be, we're all going to be wearing the same fine linen. And, uh, and, and, and then he says in verse nine, the angel said to me, right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. So we're all invited. If you know Christ is your savior, you have the invitation. And at this, John says in verse 10, he falls, he falls down. And he worships. Now, the angel uh, who told him this in verse 9, he's worshiping. And that's when the angel corrects him. Don't do it. I'm just a servant. Um, he says, worship God. And he directs the attention of worship onto the Lord. And so, verse 11, we move into... Oh, by the way. No, I'm good. Okay. Verse 11. I saw... I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. Now, who's this? It's Jesus, Faithful and True, riding on a white horse. With justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Now, that's a reference to the saints. This is not a reference to angels. The armies of heaven following him, dressed in fine linen, that's the fine linen that the bride was given back in verse 8. So, when Jesus returns to the earth, he's going to be riding on a white horse. The saints come with him. And it says also that the saints will be riding on white horses. Now, I don't, I don't know, some of you are horse lovers and you ride really well and some of you have never ridden in your life. Don't worry about it. You're, you're going to have the ability to ride a horse. You know, I've only ridden a few times and um, each time it was, it was, I don't know, these are big animals. It's just like, whoa. Uh, but it won't be one of those deals where you're, you know, all worried about how, you, how do I ride this thing? It's going to be fine. You're going to sing fine. You're going to look fine. You're going to ride a horse fine. But verse 15 says, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now real quickly, take a look at this little uh, contrast here between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. The first coming of Jesus... He was gentle riding on a donkey. I'm talking about when he came into Jerusalem and he's ready to die on the cross. This is Palm Sunday. Gentle riding on a donkey. He comes weeping, the Bible says. He wept over Jerusalem on his way to the cross. He comes wearing a, a crown of thorns. He received that crown when he was being crucified. And it tells us that Jesus' blood was on his enemies because in Matthew 27, 25, the crowd shouted, wanting him crucified, May his blood be on us and on our children. When you contrast that to what we just read, very, very different Jesus coming back. Now he's a mighty warrior. He's making war riding on a white horse, not gentle riding on a donkey. He is fierce, ready for battle. He's not weeping. His eyes are ablaze with fire. 
He's not wearing a crown of thorns. He's wearing many crowns, is what the word says here in verse 12. And it's the word diadem. The Antichrist, by the way, wears a crown, but that's Stephanos. That's like a laurel wreath crown. In the Greek here, this is diadem. This is the royal crown. And he's wearing many, it says in verse 12. And instead of Jesus' blood being on his enemies, it tells us in verses 13 and 15 that his enemy's blood will be on Jesus. Because when it says that his robe is dipped in blood, verse 13, that's not his own blood. That's the blood of his enemies because it tells us in verse 15 that he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. He's treading out the winepress. Now, this is a statement referring to when God brings this ultimate destruction to the enemies uh, of the nations that come against God and come against the nation of Israel. When the Lord returns, we have this climactic battle called the Battle of Armageddon. We talked about it in chapter 16. This is a reference to when Jesus completely squashes all the armies that are opposed to him and opposed to the nation of Israel. And so when he does that, it's as if, using the typology of ancient Israel, someone who would get into a wine press, a vat, and begin to trample on, on grapes to press the juice out, you're going to get your garments stained if you, if you don't have them tucked up high enough. And, and so when Jesus comes again, he's going to trample down his enemies. And the blood from the fury of his wrath, the, from the vengeance of the Lord, when he tramples down his enemies, he'll, his garments will be stained with the blood of his enemies. Then chapter 16 talked about how the Kidron Valley will flow black with the blood up to the bridal's horse of the enemies. And by the way, Kidron in, in the Hebrew means black. And so it would normally flow black with the blood of the sacrifices from the Temple Mount. But in the day of the Battle of Armageddon, it will flow with the blood of the enemies of Israel and of the enemies of God. And Jesus is going to trample them down. But notice again, the armies of heaven, it's the saints coming with the Lord in the air. Jude verse 14 says, see the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones, it's the Greek word hagios, meaning saints, to judge everyone and to convict all the ungodly of all the ungodly acts that they have done. First Thessalonians 3 verse 13 says, May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. It's again in the King James saints. It is the Greek hagios. It's talking about believers. So, the saints are going to come with the Lord back to the earth. Jesus comes as this valiant warrior, destroying the enemies of God, destroying the enemies of Israel. He has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he is. And he is going to wield the sword, and he is going to destroy all the enemies. So, time is of the essence here. And, and this is going to be this, the end of this great battle of Armageddon. Jesus will here be victorious. And... Um, then he, uh, John talks about the other thing that he sees in verse 17 to 18. I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds, fly in midair, come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, small and great. And so that their carcass which remain as a result of their death. Their, you know, bodies are going to be strewn all over the Kidron and Jezreel Valley when Jesus comes again and just with the, the breath of his mouth overthrows the enemy. 
And so then the, the angel calls the birds of the air to come and devour the flesh, clean up the carcasses. And so you, know, you can see all these, these turkey vultures and, you know, all this, these gross birds that are going to come down and swoop and, and destroy all the flesh of the kings and generals, mighty men, and clean up the earth in that way. And then the final thing he sees, starting in verse 19, Then I saw the beast, and this is the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who had performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast, we've already talked about this, and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Now, we will read in more detail in chapter 20 next week about the destruction of the the dragon, which is Satan, and the Antichrist, the beast, and the false prophet. And they're all three thrown into the the Gehenna, which is the lake of fire. Gehenna is different from Hades. Hades is presently where non-believers go. It is a place of torment. It is a place of suffering. But Hades will be emptied. And all those who have rejected God, who have gone to Hades, that's the Greek word, hell is what we would say in English, will then be transferred to the lake of fire where they will be perpetually tormented. Now, again, this is difficult for non-believers because they begin to think, you know, how unkind and unloving of God, why would he ever want people to suffer like that? Listen to this. The Bible says that hell was originally created for the devil and his angels. That's God's design. For those who rebelled against him, the devil and angels, he prepared hell for them. You have to work hard at going to hell. If you want to go there, it's only because you have outright rejected God and and rejected Jesus as your Lord and Savior. God doesn't want any to perish, the Bible says. He wants all to come to repentance. He makes the way for us to be saved because of the cross. Hell was originally designed for the devil and his his fallen angels. And so for people to go to hell, it's because they willfully go there by their own choice because they've outright rejected Jesus. But that's never God's desire. And He's made the way possible. And then He puts all of this together in the Word so that we'll know in advance and understand His plan for us and His love for us and the depth that He has gone to, the length that He has gone to, to demonstrate His love for us. The Bible says that God demonstrated His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You and I I didn't do a single thing to warrant His love or to deserve heaven. That God purposed it before the foundation of the world and made a plan of redemption for us through the cross, through Jesus, so that all who believe and receive would be saved. That's how much God loved us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And so when you read this 19th chapter and you you consider all the sights and the sounds, look, take heart. Jesus is coming again. Amen, church? He's coming again. He's going to receive his bride. And then there's going to be this great wedding banquet. There's going to be this great celebration. And there's an invitation for all who want to come to the banquet. The invitation is... Receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You're in. You'll be given clothes to wear and a horse to ride and the whole deal. And it's provided for us at a great cost 
but it's free to receive. Jesus paid the dowry. It was his blood. He bought us to be his bride. That he would spend eternity with us because he loves us. He loves his bride. You are his bride. And he's prepared a place in heaven for us and he's coming again to receive us. That where he is, there we might be also. The real question is, are you ready for him? Because if you're not, there's no better time than now to receive him as your Lord and Savior. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? For those of you who know Christ as your Savior and you read this chapter, doesn't it make your heart just rejoice? Would you just right now with your heads bowed just thank the Lord Jesus that he died for you, that he loved you so much that he saved you? Just thank him for your salvation. Would you do that? Just prayerfully, just quietly, just thank him for your salvation. Now with your heads bowed, let me speak a moment to those of you who are here tonight and you don't know that you're saved. You don't know Christ as your Savior. And you want to trust Him as your Savior tonight. You want to receive Him as your Lord. You want to be at this wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. You want to know that your sins are forgiven. You want to know how much God loves you, that heaven is promised for you then this is how you receive that. You pray right now and you invite Jesus into your heart. You say, how do I do that? I'm going to lead you. And as I lead you, you just pray this prayer where you're seated. You just whisper this prayer to the Lord. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, you want to make Him Lord of your life, He died on the cross. He's done everything now He can do for you. The rest is up to you. Will you respond to His free gift of salvation? You respond by inviting Him into your heart to forgive you of your sins and to be your Lord and Savior. And so I'll pray. And if you want to pray with me, just pray this where you're seated. Just pray it to the Lord as I lead you. Just repeat it after me. Lord Jesus, thank You for loving me so much so that You would die for me. Thank You that You paid the price for my sins. Forgive me of my sins, Lord. Every sin I've ever committed, forgive me. I believe that you died for those sins because you love me. So I accept you tonight as my Lord and Savior. I open my heart to you. I surrender my life to you. And I ask you, Lord, To be my Lord and Savior. This day forward. Forever. I yield to you Lord. I love you Lord. I commit my life to you. In Jesus name. Amen and amen. Before you're dismissed. If you just now prayed that prayer with me. I'm going to stand down front. Some of the other pastors too. We'd love to give you a New Testament Bible just to encourage you before you drive home tonight. So if you have a minute to do that, we'll be down front to receive you and and to, to encourage and to pray with you. God bless you all. Stand, please. Show yourself friendly to somebody on the way out. Have a great night. We'll see you this weekend for church. Have a good night.